You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show in support of European-level actions within the skeptical movement. The ESP is run by individuals representing different skeptical groups from across the continent. This is episode number 46. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Jelena Levin and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Всем привет! Hey, San, hey, San. How are you? Yeah, all is good. Um, <laughs> Halloween is in the full swing. We've got fireworks outside, which I can't see because they obstructed by buildings, but I can hear them. Oh, good. That's a that's a nice tradition. We had that before. It was Andras who had the fireworks at one point. I think it was Andras at one point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Long time ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. <laughs> uh, so if, um, if you if you hear some noise outside, this is uh, fireworks, uh, people having fun in Greenwich, yeah. obviously. Mm-hmm. Pontus, is uh, um, Halloween a big thing in uh, in Sweden? It is nowadays, yes. It has been growing for the last 10 years. And uh, yes, it's in full swing. My, But the question is, when is the right day? Oh, yeah. Uh, in Sweden, there's big confusion Monday. about it. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I can agree with that. But mm. there's a lot of confusion in Sweden because we have this All Saints Day and we have yes. other other days. And they're moving uh, because it's always on the closest Friday to, uh, you know, I don't know, once in a blue moon. I don't know. There's something strange there. So it always moves a little bit. Mm-hmm. And uh, so people have different opinions. So, of course, the, the kids go out every day for a week and, and collect candy. So everybody is happy. Everybody hide from the kids quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yesterday, we um, it was Friday, uh, we went out to the pub and I was dressed up like a vicar. I saw that picture. Very clever. <laughs> it's very, uh, did you get any candy? Uh, no, but I was I or, was telling or any people, small boys. <gasps> <laughs> I should have gone for that. No, um, yeah, and I was telling people that um, I'm I can be booked for exorcisms. Ooh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, but yeah. no, I, I any came customers? across no one who any wanted customers? to do that. No, no, not yet, not yet. All yeah. right. Uh, yeah, but actually, at the bar, one guy asked me the question with a straight face and honest to God, <laughs> he was serious about it. He asked me if I was a vicar, <laughs> for real. <laughs> but <laughs> are you sure he wasn't? Are you sure he wasn't joking? No, I. I mean, I'm not saying that I'm an expert in in reading people's face, mm, mm, mm. but but you are. He was really. He was. He was really sounded uh, genuine with his question. Okay. Yeah. So right. Oh, and uh, it was. It was a place they were preparing for for Halloween, and uh, the the whole place was uh, was decorated with uh, with the Halloween themed uh, stuff. And uh, my reply was, "Is this place really a haunted place?" <laughs> and he looks at me like okay i got it all right okay <laughs> so. but i'm sure you would do it i mean any any listeners who needs a good exorcism just contact at skepman on twitter and andras will come and fix it yeah or you can write me an email as well on andras at vesp.eu mm-hmm. uh and uh i'm i'm not the most expensive one yeah. I, I I can do it for a re quite a reasonable price. Surely yeah. just effect as effective as anybody else. Yeah. Yes, I can be. Yeah, and I hear that the Pope is very uh, busy these days, so he <laughs> you might not be able to. He's very expensive. Him. Yeah, you don't yeah, he don't he go for be, don't yeah. go for him. No, no. <laughs> yeah, he must go be. for our own Andres. Yes, we'll cut you a deal. Uh, exercise one, get one free. Yeah, and it all goes to a good cause. Yeah, um, which we will tell you later what the good cause is. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just give us the money, and then yeah, we'll decide. Just trust us. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, what do we have for today? Um, it's gonna be a great show, I'm pretty sure. But um, I think uh, before we um, go and. Um, look through all the the upcoming events i think it's worth mentioning that we're going to have a few interviews uh first of all we we're going to have a long feature interview with uh none other than simon singh uh we've been preparing for this interview for a while it's uh but now that uh, the good thinking society actually received uh, an occam's award um it was absolutely a must to have him on the show uh but there are a few other Short-term interviews recorded at QED. 
um, some of them will be released along with uh, the long feature interview with Simon Singh. I just want to mention I was uh, we had a skeptics in the pub here uh, last week on Thursday. Uh, with, and I mentioned it on the show once or twice before, but with... Uh, with the dogs? Yes. Is that the one? Yes. Yeah. Uh, a lady called Louise Hansare. Who, she is a uh, scientific uh, journalist here in Sweden, and she has investigated whether search dogs actually are so good as we give them credit for. And it was really, really interesting. And she has a, a, some very good points. Uh, there is not a lot of scientific data to back the claims up. Mm. But I have I recorded a short interview with her, which we will uh, edit and, and, and uh, put on the show later on sometime. So you can hear for yourselves what she said. But it was really a great time. So thank you, Louise, if you're listening. It was a, a great talk. Okay. So I think it's about time for us to start the show let's see what we have lined up for the coming week in terms of events so it's halloween time so it, there's no surprise uh, that we have in glasgow a halloween special zombie science genes of the damned so that sounds really spooky and good <laughs> Uh, we continue with the Halloween theme the next day on a Tuesday, the um, 1st of November. And there will be an, uh, Skeptics in the Pub in Chichester with Pro uh, Professor Chris French. Why we believe in ghosts. On the same day, Tuesday the 1st, uh, another Skeptics in the Pub in Nottingham uh, will be uh, a talk w with an event, I would say, with David Alnwick, Mind Wizards. Now, he is amazing. He was uh, performing at QED, so I highly recommend him. He's incredible. And he sat next to me uh, at the gala dinner. Oh. We had a very, very nice chat. Yeah, and he's, so uh, he's he's a lovely guy. Mm. He does uh, seem like a really nice guy, yeah. Yeah, and the performance was absolutely amazing. Mm. He did a brilliant mm. job. It was very good. Yeah. It was very good. And by the way, Chris French, Professor Chris French, two weeks from now, when that episode comes out, you might be able to listen to an interview with him. If all goes well. Yeah. And on the next day, Wednesday, the 2nd of November, uh, there will be an event which is not a Skeptics in the Pub, but um, more like a, a panel discussion in Barcelona, in uh, Spain. And uh, the title is The Skeptical Knife, Political Lies and Their Social Consequences. And uh, it's organized by the Alliance of Liberals and Democrats for Europe group. And the panelists will be Michael Shermer, Julian Bargini, and Jose Miguel Mulet. It should be very interesting. I wonder if that will be in English because of Michael Shermer. So if you're around the area, just try to go along and find out for yourself. But if, if you look at the, the actual calendar, you'll see a link there so you can find it out. And uh, also, outside of the UK, uh, Leipzig, Skeptics in the Pub is back. It's a Skeptics, uh, Skeptics in the Pub social. So this is the November edition. Go along if you're around Leipzig. On the same day, we have in the UK, in High Wycombe, a social Skeptics in the Pub. And in Greenwich, uh, we have Homeopathy in the UK with our best friend, Michael Marshall. In Oxford, we have uh, a brief history of everyone who ever lived by uh, Adam Rutherford. And we've talked about that before. This still sounds like a very interesting event. On the Thursday, the 3rd of November, there will be a Liverpool Skeptics in the Pub Social. So no particular theme. People will just be hanging out, uh, having a good time. Um, as well as the social, uh, there will be a Merseyside Skeptics board meeting on the same day. So I'm not sure if it's going to be open to anybody to attend. I'm assuming it is. It is open to anybody. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, in Tunbridge Wells, there will be um, skeptics in the pub uh, with Neil Woods. And uh, the talk will be around cops and drugs. Um, ever wanted to know what it's really like being an undercover drugs detective? That sounds very exciting. So come along to find out. If you're around the Teesside area... Uh, you can listen to a talk given by Dr. Joanna Larch with the title Faking It, Morals, Fashion and Fakes. How intriguing. Or, if you're around the Barnsley area, 
go and try to find a place uh, at Skeptics in the Pub, where Professor Chris Salmon will give a talk with the title Trip the Light Fantastic Through the Eyes of a Spectroscopist. Spectroscopy. Interesting topic. Mm-hmm. Interesting alloy. Okay, yeah. And on Friday night, we go uh, to the Netherlands, where in Delft they have a Skeptics social event. So that's interesting to see. And then on a Sunday, the 6th of November, there will be Edinburgh Skeptics Underground. Trolley problems and other philosophical games. Cool. Interesting. I have no idea what trolley problem is. The trolley problem is very interesting. It's basically a thought experiment. If you have a a trolley uh, uh, that's going downhill somewhere and Mm -hmm. it's going to kill a number of people and you can can pull a lever and it would only kill one person, should you do it or not? Those are very, very interesting uh, questions. Philosophical Uh, questions, yeah. Yeah. Okay, I think that's it for the week. Uh, Quite a packed week again. Especially in, if if you're in the UK, but uh, never mind. I keep saying this, and I'm gonna say it again. Please, if you're an organizer of an event like this, please let us know about it. Please write to us um, so that we can add it to the calendar uh, for everyone in Europe to see or wherever the world they are. And uh, you can get in touch with us in various wonderful ways. Twitter, our Twitter handle is at. ES podcast underscore EU. Our email address is info at theesp.eu. Um, you can also like us on Facebook and follow us, um, or you can go on our website, which is theesp.eu, and complete a contact form. Don't forget, if you are subscribed to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a review, um, and it just helps to spread the word. Okay, let's move on. We have a couple of interviews to release with this episode before we go on to the long feature interview with Simon Singh. Mm -hmm. And those were recorded at QED. So far, I've met uh, so many familiar people uh, that are even friends around, lots of people uh, attending QED. But uh, I just met a gentleman who's uh, apparently from Italy, and uh, your name is Andrea. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm from Italy. Uh, been in London for quite some time, and. I would say, I mean, I wasn't aware of any kind of skeptical movement or anything happening in Italy before I've been told like three minutes ago, so that was quite surprising and I think the other thing I'm quite surprised to hear is that even if I was in London, I wasn't aware at all that there was a skeptical uh, European convention happening last year there. So it's a bit weird because I've been following skepticism, skeptical podcasts for quite some time, so I think the fact that I'm not aware of that. It's, it's a bit concerning in a way because <laughs> I would expect to know this kind of stuff. So yeah, but and it's good to meet people here and, and know about these things happening. So yeah. yeah. So how did you? How, is this your first time uh, uh, to attend the QED? Yeah, this is the first time. I heard about it one year ago from Skadris Pizza K, uh, but it was like few weeks before the event was happening, so I wasn't able to join. And this is my first skepticism convention I came to so yeah how do you like it so far uh, it's, it's really nice it's, it's great I mean it's just having people that have like think the same way you think and hearing all this amazing stuff it's, it's really cool and it's quite inspiring also and I mean after today I mean I'm quite keen to get involved in something I don't know yet what but I'm really looking forward to get some action basically going Great, so that sounds fantastic. And uh, what is it you're into? In you mean outside of his? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't have any science, proper science background. I mean, I have a degree in computer science, if you want to call that science. I think it's a bit weird kind of science, but <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I quite like health-related stuff, so that's maybe some of the thing I'd be looking for. Uh, I don't know, I'm really looking to do some kind of activism. Something I'm maybe looking at is the 
uh, gorilla skepticism that I heard about a couple of days ago. But I think I can do probably some help there in the Italian kind of uh, Wikipedia pages. So that may be where I can start, but I don't know yet. I'm, I mean, I have to look around and see, but I'm quite keen to get involved because there are so many people doing cool things and this yeah. quite inspiring. So, uh, Actually, I do know an Italian editor uh, uh, in uh, the movement of the project of Guerrilla Skepticism on Wikipedia. She, uh, I, I'm pretty sure that she would be delighted to have another one oh, okay. to work with. <laughs> yeah, I need to get the content then. Yeah, definitely. Okay. I can help you with that. Yeah, and uh, do you want to... Um, because there are not many Italians around here that, that I, I've noticed. Yeah. Uh, do you want to say something? Because we, we do have some Italian listeners. Do you want to say something to them? In Italian? Oh, oh that would be lovely. No, I don't think... <laughs> I think that's too much, sorry to ask. <laughs> Not at this time, but I think, I mean, let me say it in English because I think that's probably easier, but I think just, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to know that there's, there's a movement in Italy going on and I think just people just get and just try to get people involved because I think in Italy it's a bit tricky place compared to the UK, for example. I think people are still like not really into this kind of stuff, are a bit more like less open-minded. So I think it's great to know that there are people out there and as I said, I may try to maybe give some help there due to the fact that I'm Italian and I know the language. So yeah, keep fantastic, going. Fantastic, fantastic. Enjoy the rest of your weekend yeah. and uh, hope to see you around at some other events like uh, either in Wroclaw uh, in 2017 yeah. or at the next QED. Yeah, thanks so much for this. That was quite cool. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. Yeah, Andrea, ciao. Another friendly face around here. That's uh, Leon Kortweg from the Netherlands. Hello, people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it's been a long time that we were we, we, we've uh, seen each other, but uh, this is not the first time that we are here together at QED, is it? No, this is actually the third time, and we've also seen each other at the European Skeptics Congress in London. Oh, that's true, actually. So, how do you like to, uh, QED 2016? Well, it's, it's just lovely. It's just uh, so many old friends, and I meet new friends that I've previously only interacted with on Facebook, or completely new friends that I've never, never, ever seen before. So, and just hanging out with, uh, with lots of people in, in different groups and different settings, different sessions or uh, different dinners, and we meet lots of skeptics and from different countries, and each has their own story, how they got into skepticism, what their particular uh, interests are. So it's, it's, it's really, really exciting here. But the interesting th thing is that you even try to do something about uh, putting that information out there. And uh, do you want to say something about what, what, what that is? Yeah, so I, uh, I'm a skeptical activist on many projects, but the most important is Guerrilla Skepticism on Wikipedia. And here I am uh, um, doing a kind of sub-project within that, which is uh, about skeptical organizations in Europe. And I'm trying to uh, uh, gather and write down uh, basic information on all skeptical organizations across the European continent in their native language first and in English uh, second, so that everyone can know, uh, ordinary citizens can know what kind of a skeptical organization there is in their country, and skeptics from across the uh, border can know what their colleagues are doing. And, um, we can use this also to encourage skeptical activism on a European level. Very cool. So keep up the good work and uh, enjoy the rest of uh, your the, the event. Uh, we are, it's only Saturday night, so we have uh, almost a full day to go. Yes, thank you, and uh, I would like to wish the same to you. You had a wonderful presentation at Skepticamp, and uh, it's, it's, it's lovely to be around you and many other friends here, and I'm sure we're going to make it a, a great, great event, and uh, I encourage anyone listening to this, come to the next QED as well. You, you, it's, it's really cool, and it's one of the best things you'll do in your entire skeptical year. <laughs> <laughs> and you definitely won't regret yeah. Okay. Cool. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> and now, 
I think it's time for us to move on to our long interview with Simon Singh. On every other episode, we interview a person representing an organization or project, either from a certain European country or stretching across borders. Today, our guest is physicist, journalist, author, science communicator and television producer Simon Singh. He's the author of several highly regarded books that usually have a strong mathematical angle, and he co-authored Trick or Treatment, Alternative Medicine on Trial, which is among the most widely circulating books in the hands of skeptics. He's also a trustee of Sense About Science, and his clash with the British Chiropractic Association resulted not only them being unsuccessful, but it also led to an internationally recognized campaign for libel reform in the UK, crowned by the famous Defamation Act of 2013. In 2012, he founded the Good Thinking Society, that just received the prestigious Occam's Award for the NHS homeopathy campaign and is undoubtedly the UK's leading force in changing the landscape with regard to homeopathy and other bogus treatments and claims. Well, we could go on listing your achievements for ages, but Simon, let me welcome you to the show. Um, it's really good to talk to you. Yeah, it's been planned for a while, so um, it's it's really good to have you now. Actually, we just listed a couple of all the achievements uh, of, of yours, and, and you're not an old man. So how much sleep deprived are you? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm probably older than you think, but uh, um, I think I've just, I've chopped and changed careers. So, so you know, you, you know, physicist, journalist, um, skeptic, um, author, lots of different things. But the common thread is a passion for science. I love science. I wanted to be a scientist. I think there came a time in my life when I realized that uh, when I was doing my PhD, that other people around me were brighter and quicker and sharper than me. So I thought they are the people who will go on to make great discoveries and I probably should find something else to do. <laughs> so then I worked in television for five or six years and that was brilliant because that was science television. Um, so that helped me take my research skills and on top of that, I could add um, skills to do with script writing and filming and storytelling and then from there i moved into writing books so i developed my storytelling skills even further um, that took me into schools if you know if you write science books lots of teachers invite you into their schools so i have a strong interest in education and, and uh, science and maths education in particular and then i became frustrated with bad science previously i, I always loved good science i love to champion the wonder of science but I began to realize it's also important to challenge pseudoscience. And so that got me interested in alternative medicine and writing about alternative medicine with Professor Edzard Ernst. And that took me closer to the skeptical movement. And then I got sued for libel. And so I have this other interest in, in, in free speech and, and uh, trying to rewrite the law, which we did successfully. Uh, and that brought me even closer to the skeptical movement because the skeptical support was fantastic. Uh, not just in the UK, but across Europe. And in fact, Australia and America as well. It was it was fantastic. And the sceptical movement really made a massive difference in England and Wales. And that affects everybody because the problem in the past was that um, English libel laws were so bad that people would come to London to sue for what's known as libel tourism. So we have cases of uh, Icelandic banks suing Danish newspapers in London a Saudi billionaire suing an American author in London, um, Ukrainian newspapers being sued in London. So that was a, a the world helped. And the impact has also been, you know, um, and then starting good thinking was also a way of, um, you know, I was doing so many things to do with skepticism and others were doing so many things. It seemed good to kind of bring it under an umbrella and do it in a more formal way rather than in a rather haphazard way, which is, you're right. I've, I've kind of done lots of different things for short periods of time. And I think the strength of that is that you can take something from one area and apply it in, in another area. And uh, and so, yeah, it, you know, the, the sum of the parts is uh, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. I can never remember which way round it is. But anyway, <laughs> wherever I am, I'm here now. Yeah. So, Simon, it seems that you've always been uh, very much into especially maths and physics. I, is that correct? And did that start when you were very young? So, you know, as, as long ago as I can remember, I've been, I've been interested in, in science. You know, I, I grew up in the 1970s. Uh, on television, there were tons of science. 
Um, there were programs like Tomorrow's World that your you know, British li- listeners will, will know about, things like Horizon, uh, people were landing on the moon, nuclear power was taking off, there were new technologies everywhere. And so for a kid growing up, science was an amazing uh, pursuit. Uh, and so I, I was good at science as well. And if you're good at something, you work hard. If you work hard, you get better at it and then you want to do even more. And and so, yeah, fr- from as early an age as I can remember, I was fascinated by science, particularly pure science, um, particle physics and, and cosmology and those kind of big, big questions. Uh, Simon, you've, you've written a book. It's uh, the code book, the science of secrecy from ancient Egypt to quantum cryptography. Why cryptography? How did it happen that you got interested in this subject? I think when you, when you write a book, the, the big problem, you know, people say, oh, I'm interested in, in science journalism. And um, how, you know, how can I be a science journalist? And, and people tend to think it's all about writing. And, and really, writing is a very small part of it. The challenge, I think, really is to find something to write about. Okay, mm. you've got to find a good story. Mm-hmm. And then you've got to figure out, you know, who to pitch it to. Is it for a newspaper? Is it for a magazine? Is it for a general audience? Is it for a specialist audience? Then you have to persuade the editor to take the piece. And then at the end, you have to write it, okay? And then afterwards, you have to publicize it as well. But, but as you can see, writing is only a small part of it. And, and I think the biggest challenge is finding something to write about. I, I haven't had a good idea for a book for about... I would say 10 years, okay? I, <laughs> good ideas are hard to find. <laughs> and so when I, when I co- came across the idea of codes, I'd written a book beforehand called Fermat's Last Theorem, uh, which was about a pure mathematical problem. And in that book, I'd had a short section about Alan Turing. Um, people may be aware of Alan Turing as a great cryptographer or a, a, a person who broke the codes in the Second World War, People may know him as being a, a father of computer science, um, but he was also involved in pure mathematics in, in the most fundamental level. And uh, so when I incorporated him into Fermat's Last Theorem and I talked about his code-breaking work, that's what got me thinking about code-breaking. And, and I realized that, one, it's a topic with great stories because you have secrecy and privacy and military battles and 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 all sorts of intrigue so it's a great storytelling uh subject with a great history um and with a wide variety of codes as well um and it's also more relevant today than ever before we live in the information age um you know information is incredibly valuable and with information, you tend not to lock it up. You tend to encrypt it. You tend to use a code to protect it. So, um, you know, it was great stories, great history, incredibly relevant today, and some fascinating mathematics, um, some great breakthroughs in the last 20, 30, 40 years that have transformed privacy and, and security online. Um, and so, yeah, when you put all of those things together and the fact that nobody else had really written about this topic for uh, really sort of 30, 40, 50 years, um, I realized that, gosh, this is a story. This is something that I want to write about and I think other people will want to read about. So, yeah, yeah. When you come across something like that, uh, you you just leap on it and and it was very exciting, yeah. Mm, Fascinating, yeah. And they they have been uh, translated to several other languages as well, uh, weren't they? Yeah, I'm very lucky because I write about science and mathematics and those are universal subjects. I think my first book was translated into maybe 30 languages. Mm. Uh, The code book was probably about 25 languages. Yeah, it's it's great when I get emails from people um, in Japan or South Korea or or, um, South America you know, it's it's one that I have these shelves full of translated books. I have no idea what they say, um, <laughs> but um, but yeah, no, it's it's great to to be able to write something that has such a broad appeal. And was this what led you to deal with alternative medicine, uh, the broad appeal? No, well, the, the alternative medicine idea was um, I had heard people using homeopathy to protect themselves against malaria, and I couldn't believe this was true. I think people would use homeopathy for malaria protection. I couldn't believe 
people would sell it for malaria protection. So I did an investigation with Sense About Science. I'm a trustee of that charity now. I wasn't back then. People may know about Sense About Science. They, they promote uh, I suppose science in society and its role in society uh, in the UK. And, and they also have a European arm now. So with uh, Sense About Science, we sent somebody undercover to 10 homeopaths to see if a homeopath really would offer homeopathy to protect against malaria. And in 10 out of 10 cases, the homeopath said, yes, take these pills. And, you know, the story that our investigator went with was she was going to West Africa for 10 weeks in a truck journey. So she was going to be exposed to the most dangerous strains of malaria that can kill within three days. And yet every homeopath was willing to, to let her risk her life. So that became a story um, in the BBC and in some of the newspapers and uh, what was great, I remember at the time, if you Googled malaria and homeopathy, you would find people willing to offer you th this treatment. But after the investigation, if you Google homeopathy and malaria, you would go to websites about our investigation. So I can see that the power of this could really help the, the, the public. You know, it could really inform and, and bring them up to speed on, on some of these dangers. Then uh, a couple of years later, the BBC made a terrible documentary series about alternative medicine. It was, I think it was deeply misleading. In fact, I complained to the BBC and the complaint was upheld, a programme about acupuncture. And, uh, you know, there was so much misinformation, partly on the BBC. And I, I love the BBC. I should say I worked there for six years. I think they're a fantastic organisation. But in this case, they got it badly wrong. Um, there's misinformation on the internet, there's misinformation in the glossy magazines, there's misinformation here, there and everywhere. So that's where the idea of trickle treatment came from. The, the idea was to write a book with Professor Edzard Ernst, who was the world's first professor of complementary medicine, look at all the different therapies uh, in an unbiased way. Let's look at the evidence that's out there and to then provide people with the, the information so that they... Now, if, if somebody is spending, you know, 100 euros on, on alternative therapies for themselves and their family, then they should spend it on alternative therapies that might work, not therapies that don't work or therapies that are possibly even dangerous. So my hope was that lots of people would say, yeah, I'll spend 10 euros on this book because it's going to inform me and help me and my family. Um, in fact, the book hasn't really sold very well. Uh, amongst the general public so um i'm not sure it ever really achieved its goal uh but it's had an impact so i mean you know i was at qed not long ago just just a couple of weeks ago the, the big skeptical conference in manchester and it was great to meet people there who had read trickle treatment and it had helped them escape from a cult or it helped them uh you know move away from alternative therapy or in the case of Brit Hermes, who writes the Naturopathic Diaries, um, it was the book that helped her move out of naturopathy into natu challenging naturopathy. So um, it's a book I'm very, very proud of, but, but I just wish more people would read it so that they, didn't, they were more informed when it came to choosing alternative therapies. It's been uh, translated to several languages uh, as well. Uh... At least, I, I do know for a fact that um, it's translated into Hungarian. Uh, we promoted it back in Hungary, uh, and uh, it's uh, definitely available in German, and I'm pretty sure on many other languages as well. S Swedish as well. I, we in the Swedish skeptics movement have, have a Swedish translation that we've been promoting for many years as well. Yep, and there's definitely a French edition, and I think there's an Italian edition, and I think there's an Israeli edition, a Hebrew edition. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's out there. It's interesting. In some countries, I remember in Israel, uh, a politician was uh, recovering from, from uh, cancer therapy, therapy for cancer, and uh, she'd mentioned that she was perhaps considering some alternative therapies. And one of the big TV chat show hosts said, hey, you want to read this book? trickle treatment so wow. in Israel, it, did, it did incredibly well because it got such a high profile boost in germany i know it's done very very well um so yeah it, it, it's good to see it having this impact uh, you know i think the book you know we can't say all, all alternative therapies are rubbish because there are hundreds of alternative therapies and they are used for thousands of different conditions so we have to look at each therapy for each condition 
and and come to a conclusion. So, you know, there are some things in the book which we say, you know, you might want to think about using it. But many others, we, we you know, our, our general consensus is that this stuff doesn't work and people are, are really um, risking their own health if they rely on these alternative therapies. It's not just through your books that you've made a name for yourself, Simon. Uh, do you know that if you t type in happily promotes on Google, it auto completes with bogus treatments. I think you have something to do about that. Can, can you can you please tell us about that? Yeah. So so when when you write a book like Trick or Treatment or any other book, you have to promote it. You have to make sure people know the book exists. So you give lectures and you give interviews and you write articles. And I'd written an article soon after Trick or Treatment was published about chiropractic treatment. You know, I, I have to admit that before I'd written the book, I had no idea what chiropractic was. So if other people don't know about it it is a treatment whereby the therapist focuses on the spine and by um, manipulating the spine by aligning the vertebrae um, the therapist feels that they can heal the patient now naturally your first instinct is that well this is how you fix some back problems maybe and you know chiropractors will fix back problems um, they aren't really any more successful than physiotherapists or anybody else um, and possibly a bit more dangerous because you know, every intervention has side effects and, and chiropractic can be quite aggressive. So it can have some side effects. But, but the weird thing about chiropractic is that, that many chiropractors, to a greater or lesser extent, believe that because the nervous system or much of the nervous system passes through the spine and because the nervous system taps out to the rest of the body, that you can tr treat conditions that have nothing to do with the back by manipulating the spine, things like asthma and colic um, and ear infections, but you know, lots of childhood conditions, funnily enough, because the theory is often that the, the birthing process can be so traumatic that the spine can be aligned and therefore we have to align the baby's spine to remove the colic or, or something else. And, uh, and you see these videos on YouTube, some of them are horrible, of babies that are just days old having their spine aligned by a practice. So anyway, my article, which was in The Guardian, a British, British national newspaper, um, particularly criticized chiropractors for treating children for colic and asthma and ear infections and so on. And I, I particularly blamed the professional body. And that week, the professional body of the chiropractors, the, the British Chiropractic Association, was running a chiropractic awareness week. So I particularly highlighted them because uh, if my memory serves me right, I may be wrong, um, you know, they were running this week. So I thought they have a particular responsibility for for looking at their members and making sure their members don't make. Um, and somewhere in the article, I use this phrase that they really promote bogus therapies, um, uh, something like that. Uh, again, I'm, I can't quite remember. It was a long time ago. It was 2008. Um, and that's part of the reason they ended up suing me for libel. Um, it, you know, libel is incredibly complicated. And that phrase happily promotes bogus treatments um, on its own is kind of meaningless. Um, you have to read that statement within the context of the whole article. And so when I was sued for libel, um, there was a huge amount of legal debate a huge amount of, of legal discussion a huge amount of, of cost and money um, poured over this article in order to say what is simon saying what am i accusing the chiropractic association of am i just saying that chiropractic doesn't work am i saying that the british chiropractic association should take more responsibility for something that doesn't work am i saying that the british chiropractic association knows that this doesn't work um Am I saying chiropractors? No, you know, it was lots of different possible meanings. And lawyers, you know, can have long and lengthy and very expensive debates over the meaning of articles. And so um, initially for the first, well, really for, for almost two years, the case looked as though I was going to lose um, because one of the judges, the first judge, interpreted my meaning as saying that I was calling the British Chiropractic Association fraudulent that they were deliberately misleading patients 
And that was never my intention. And I don't think that's a reasonable reading of the article either. Um, luckily, um, I had tremendous support from sceptics around the world. I remember James Randi sent me an email saying he had my back covered. You know, he's willing to support me. Many other people. Um, it was amazing because when you're under such pressure, um, it's really easy to buckle and cave in. I was, you know, the, it really was a horrible thing to go through for two years. But the support from the sceptical community made me realize that I was not wrong. I might be losing, but I was not wrong. And then eventually, after two years, um, the Court of Appeal, uh, I took it to the Court of Appeal, um, uh, and three of the most senior judges in the country agreed with me that what I was saying was that, in my opinion, these therapies do not work. And that, you know, I had a right to say that, I had evidence to support it, and that in particular it was important for scientists or science journalists to be able to raise doubts and concerns because if we don't raise doubts and concerns, then the public is not being fully informed. So um, when they made that statement, the British Chiropractic Association then dropped their case against me. So um, that was a huge relief for me, but it also highlighted this problem that in English libel law, it is too easy for people to bring a libel case. And it's too hard for, for many people to defend a libel case. So academic journals, if somebody threatens to sue an academic journal for libel, they would have to back down because losing that case could bankrupt the academic journal. Um, so a, a bigger uh, campaign started for libel reform. And, um, and, and many other skeptics, people like Ben Goldacre, were being sued for libel. Uh, and many other scientists, Nature, the British Medical Journal, uh, Dr. Peter Wilmshurst, a cardiologist, all of these people were saying, look, I'm being sued for libel as well. And, and that, I think, began to turn the opinion of, of politicians in the UK that we needed to have a fairer libel law. You know, we, we need to have libel laws because, you know, we all have reputations and we don't want other people to destroy those reputations based on lies. Um, so libel is important, but we need to have the right balance so that scientists, skeptics, journalists can speak out if they have a concern. We're just going to change the direction slightly. Um, Simon, will you tell us uh, about how the Good Thinking Society came about um, and how it first formed and started, etc., and what was the reason? I think the point of Good Thinking was that uh, there were various activities that were going on. I, I was spending more time working on sceptical uh, issues and... I was kind of just doing it in my spare time and I was and I just thought, well, look, why don't we give this a name? Why don't we have some kind of formal structure? And, you know, let, let's have somebody working on this full time as well, because I think one of the problems in skepticism is that the people who sell stuff that doesn't work, they do it full time. Um, and, and we only do this part time, typically. So they have more resources, they have more time uh, and and that's why it's so often tough to, to, to battle these, these uh, pseudoscientific claims. So we, we brought on board a, a guy called Michael Marshall, who some of your listeners will know, uh, generally known as Marsh, who uh, is still with the Merseyside Skeptics, still very heavily involved in running QED, mm -hmm. but now also works pretty much full-time with the Good Thinking Society. So, um, you know, he now is across several projects, across several campaigns, looking into different issues. He's supported by Laura Thomason, uh, another uh, British skeptic and blogger uh, who has more of a biosciences background, which is really valuable. Um, she works part-time. I work part-time. And we try and do two things. We try and challenge bad science, but we also try and champion good science. So just last month, we ran a competition for uh, teenage mathematicians um, to, to take part in. And, and we, that was great. We had 300 schools uh, asked to take part. And next year we'll, we'll uh, run that again. And whoever wins the competition will get to go to America and take part in an, an American national final for, for maths teen, uh, teenage mathematicians. Uh, I also have another project that's just starting now to improve maths education in secondary schools. So we try and promote good things uh, we had a maths, uh, sorry, we had a, a science blog prize originally 
probably going back five or six years now. And we ran that for a couple of years, but then um, the British, the Association of British Science Writers took that over. So we're really happy with that. You know, we started something that was good and interesting and valuable and promoted science blogging. And now that has been passed on to another organization. So we've got time and resources to do something else. And uh, among those other things that uh, the the Good Thinking Society does, uh, there is a huge project uh, with um, a massive success and international recognition that is the NHS homeopathy uh, project that uh, really seems to be very successful. And... uh, this is the moment when I when I have to congratulate you as um, the founder and the, the leader of of the the Good Thinking Society uh, on the Occam's Award uh, that you recently received the the organization recently received at QED in Manchester. So, do you want to tell our listeners? We've covered from time to time uh, based on the news that we we have access to uh, what what's going on. But uh, I'm pretty sure you could uh, enlighten us about that. Yes, you know it was it was great to receive the award. I should say thank you to to uh, the Skeptic Magazine and thanks to QED and thanks to everyone who was there who gave us such a warm round of applause and cheering when we got the award. That was fantastic to to, to be there. That particular campaign, I think what we do at Good Thinking is we think, how can we actually be effective? You know, we could go into a a supermarket and say this supermarket sells homeopathy. Isn't that terrible? And we could blog about it. We might get it into the newspapers and then nothing really happens. Okay, Um, or we could go undercover into one homeopath and, you know, run that story. But nothing would really happen. What we try and do is say, where can we make a major impact? Now, who, is, you know, who are the big providers of homeopathy? Well, the NHS, the National Health Service in the UK, offers homeopathy. Now, I think actually the, you know, most homeopathy is privately uh, bought, either on the high street or through the private homeopathy uh, industry. But the National Health Service is very important because we trust it. You know, we love the National Health Service. We kind of rely on, 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 on you know, if, if the NHS offers it, then we assume the therapy works. So having homeopathy on the National Health Service was very disturbing because it gave homeopathy a tremendous level of credibility, which yeah. it does not deserve. Yeah. So one by one, we've been looking, and I should say, actually, I should make it clear that most, the, the way the, the National Health Service is structured, it's structured in with local uh clinical care commissioning groups uh, or ccgs um i've got that slightly wrong but the ccgs locally um fund various therapies and most ccgs in 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 england do not offer homeopathy there's been a tremendous decline over the last 20 years i think partly due to the work of skeptics but there are a few places where homeopathy is still available in the northwest of england um, in Scotland, um, obviously, you know, north of the border, they have their own system, but they, they're quite supportive of homeopathy, uh, Bristol um, and London. And those are the only places where homeopathy is still really available. So we focused our efforts first in Wirral and Liverpool, uh, trying to persuade them that, you know, your rules say really that you should only fund therapies that work homeopathy does not work why do you fund homeopathy and uh it's taken us a couple of years but um now we can say that neither liverpool nor Wirral ccg fund homeopathy and um you know we've been absolutely you know working hard to make that happen to bring that case forward but skeptics in merseyside particularly have been incredibly important the merseyside skeptics um, skeptics around the UK have also offered their, their input to consultations, and uh, you know, you know, if, if if we don't speak up for the, for the science, then nothing ever really changes. But when we do speak up and when we do uh, make our voices heard, then the CCGs seem to be willing to listen and they seem to be willing to do the right thing. In fact, I think they want to do the right thing. But if we don't speak up, then all the pressure is in the other direction. That's so true. Um, so in a way, by balancing that pressure, 
we give them the freedom to do the right thing. That's the way I see it happening. Obviously, the Good Thinking Society sets a fantastic example for not just things in the UK, but also internationally. Is is there any hope or any plans or any possibility for the Good Thinking Society to become an international organization or a movement with daughter uh, organizations in other countries, perhaps? Um, well, I mean, ultimately, we want to be interplanetary. Um, <laughs> That's good. <laughs> and maybe even intergalactic. Uh, no, I mean, I, I, I think personally, um, we have enough pseudoscience um, and wonderful science to champion as well. You know, but it's pseudoscience to challenge good science to champion in the UK. And I think the problems are very different in different countries. So I think it would be wrong of us. And even within the UK, there are lots of other organizations, lots of skeptics in the pubs and many other organizations doing their own work. So, um, you know, I don't see ourselves as the British skeptical organization. We're just an organization within the UK that does work alongside and in parallel with other organizations. So so we, we have enough, um, you know, we have enough challenges here in the UK to, to keep us very busy. Um, and you have your own challenges and your own issues and your own alternative therapies. And I think we're very happy to share our model and to share our experiences and, and what we think has worked and has not worked. Um, so we're very, very happy to, to, to share that. But I think it's other organizations can grow in other countries and they already exist in many countries. And I think, you know, we can obviously learn from you as well. In fact, we do learn from you. And Marsh in particular is our kind of tapped into the network of European skeptical organizations. And I think we'd like to encourage that in the future. You know, I, I hope we can learn from you and I hope you can learn from us. And, 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 you know, I think that's certainly happened over the last 10 years increasingly from, from what I can see. Yeah, but uh, referring back to that uh, example um, that, that you provide, uh, what would you give as an advice to those who who are f- trying to find their way of of taking part in the skeptical movement and and trying to make a change or at least uh being there and uh, helping out um i think my advice would be um if you're just on your own um you know you're just a lone person who who is passionate about an issue i think i would first look to find other people or other organizations who you can support or join or who can support you mm-hmm. and then i would say you know what do you what are you good at what do you, what is your skill set mm-hmm. so for example i think that just um gosh i'm very bad at too many things to, to list i'm not going to go through the list um, <laughs> but you know look at what your skill set is mm-hmm. and, and look at what you can do that can make an impact there are lots of things we can do that just get rid of our frustration but does it really make a difference uh, um there are lots of things we can do that we might find quite fun, but does it make a difference? I think that's the real question. You're going to put in some time and you're going to put in some effort and you might put in some of your own money as well to, 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 you know, to buy a therapy or to buy some technical equipment. And, and at the end of the day, is that going to be worth it? And nobody can guarantee an impact, but is there a likelihood of a worthwhile impact um, bearing in mind the time, effort and money you're going to put into this? Yeah. And I think my biggest yeah. advice would be to be tenacious, to really be persistent. Don't let go. Take one issue and pursue it to the end rather than tackle one project and then a month later try something else and a month later try something else and a month later try something else. Because I think you know, these challenges, if they're worth fighting, are often going to be long-term battles. And so that's what we found with homeopathy. You know, we didn't just do a homeopathy project for a month and move on to something else. We pursued the issues in, in National Health Service in, or, or the CCGs in Wirral and Liverpool for a couple of years. Yeah. And the result has been fantastic, but, but it, it requires dogged determination. So what's um, next um, for, for you and the Good Thinking Society? Any projects you're working on um, at the moment? And um, personally, I, my work in good thinking is focused on uh, a maths education project. My feeling in the UK, certainly in, in England, I should say, um, is that if you're good at mathematics and you're sort of 11 or 12 years old, um, the next five or six years of your education can be really very easy. OK, so the maths education system in, in, in England I think is tailored towards the average middling student, which is kind of maybe how it should be. Uh, we want a maths 
education that's aimed at the majority of people. But as I say, if you're really good at math, it's just way too easy. And so we have a, a project in four schools that's just started last month. And what we're trying to do is to identify students who have a potential to be strong mathematicians and we're stretching them mm. and um, we'll stretch them for the next five years, possibly even mm. seven years. Um, so the idea is that after five or seven years, can we help people become strong mathematicians? That doesn't just mean they're going to be great mathematicians. It means they're going to be uh, innovators. They're going to be uh, physicists and so on. So we're trying to help people uh, become you know, really strong scientists and mathematicians for the, for the next generation. That is great. So, you know, if this project works, you know, it, it, and we're only one month into the project, I think in a year from now, we'll know much more. Um, if the project really does seem to work, um, my goal in 10 years time is that every school has this project. Every school says, you know, some people seem to have a real passion and love and potential for mathematics. And we're going to stretch them. So, you know, my hope is that this really becomes a national project because at the moment, I just see too many young people wasting their mathematical talent because they get to 15 and they get their A star and A star is the top grade. And they think, hey, I must be brilliant at maths. And the problem is they've never really been stretched. And unless we're stretched when we're maybe 12 or 13, when we are stretched later on, it's a bit scary. It's a bit uncomfortable and people don't want to do that. So I really believe that at that young age, we should be getting people used to being stretched, uh, get people used to the idea that there are some questions that they may not be able to answer um, so that they enjoy that and they see that as a challenge rather than something they need to run away from. Mm. Well, this is an amb ambitious plan, but I think uh, both you and the Good Thinking Society have already proven on many occasions that... Uh, uh, well, ambitions are there to fulfill them and uh, to these goals can be achieved. So um, we wish you uh, all the success with those. And uh, I think um, this should wrap up our interview. We don't want to use too much of your time because with so many things going on, it's quite precious. So thank you very much again for, for your time. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you and it's been great to kind of cover so many ideas and so many issues that we're involved in here at Good Thinking and hopefully we'll have, have a chance to talk again in the future. Yeah, we definitely hope so. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Great. Goodbye. Thanks a lot. Wow, this was refreshing. Mm, finally, we... Finally, we talked to Simon Singh. I mean, he's yeah. been—he's—he's he's a big he's superhero of, of skeptics, isn't he? And, Absolutely. And we—we uh, uh, we have been talking about him for a long time, with uh, not on the show, but that we should interview him. So, so uh, now we talked to him, and that it was great. Yeah, yeah. We really enjoyed the chat, definitely. And I really think that his example should be shared with everyone in the world because uh because it's it's a great example of activism and not giving up of uh, just going forward and trying to achieve something and and he has yeah hats off so i'm i'm very happy that we did, did this and others should follow the the lead but i'm afraid this is all we had time for on this episode um next week we're coming back with a normal odd numbered episode uh, that means the the regular segments are coming back again uh we're going to cover uh, the news from across europe again along with uh, releasing a few short interviews from qed so thank you very much again for joining me it was pleasure as always thanks guys thanks a lot and until next week goodbye ciao bye bye, bye. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. 
If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Kisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.vesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe. Hey son, hey son. Good. <laughs> hey Salihupa. Hey sa Hey Salihupa. Sempre vet. Yes. How? Okay. How are you? <laughs> Uh, we have in Greenwich homeopathy uh, or homeopathy fuck this it doesn't work very well fuck homeopathy I yeah, agree yeah, yeah. exact <laughs> email address uh, is info at <laughs> the ESP.eu <laughs> 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 <laughs>